look, the data tells us if you have one more stakeholder involved in this deal, we can increase our win rate by 40%. Or if we can increase our engagement with the CFO by 20 points, we can reduce the sales cycle by 30 days. So instead of it being a combative, I'm doing okay, leave me alone, and the sales leader trying to understand the deal in more detail, all of the data should be there at the fingertips of everybody. Welcome to Revenue Insights. Every week, we'll be joined by revenue leaders from some of the most successful and highest growing companies. Together, we explore how they built their revenue teams, the journeys that they've been on, and the lessons they have learned along the way. Revenue Insights is brought to you by Ebster. We're a revenue intelligence platform designed to help revenue teams to build more pipeline, close more deals, and retain more customers. Hello there. You are listening to Revenue Insights. Today, we have a special episode lined up for you. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke with our friends over at Operatix on their podcast, and I wanted to share those insights together with you. I'll let Aurelian take the intro from here. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurelien Mottier, and I'm here today with Guy Rubin, CEO at Epstar. How are you doing today, Guy? I'm very well. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. Looking forward to our session. That's a pleasure. So we had the opportunity to meet actually a couple of times recently at dinners with the community of Pavilion. You build a report with the community of Pavilion, speaking about the 2023 B2B sales benchmark report. In fact, that's going to be the topic for today. But before we get to speak to the report and the insight that you are sharing with the community, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and the company you are representing, Epstar? Yeah, absolutely. So as you say, my name is Guy Rubin. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Ebster. We've been going for about a decade. And for a lot of that time, we were running a very unfashionable business. We were helping sales teams become more data-driven and have accurate forecasting. It wasn't really a thing eight, 10 years ago. And it wasn't something that people were really prioritizing. And then, of course, the whole world changed in the pandemic. And we've never really looked back. And we've seen everybody wake up to the reality that, that if they're not being data-driven, it's almost impossible to manage a team that are working more and more remotely. And so everyone's now on this journey to try and build this kind of predictable revenue engine and and understand the signals that lead to revenue. And that's kind of where we sit. So we have about 500 customers using our platform, everything from very small SMBs that use HubSpot. So we're the only revenue intelligence platform available for HubSpot customers, all the way up to Fortune 500 companies that are using us to manage hundreds of thousands of relationships across thousands of customers and prospects. So We, in simple terms, help companies become more data-driven in the way that that they run their sales engine and then help them achieve a more accurate forecast and scale their revenue engine. Sounds good. Everybody needs that. Everybody needs you. That's a good place to be, particularly at the moment. So before we jump into some of the key stats, could you please tell us how the report was built? So how big was the sample? What did you get the information from? Was it only from you? Did you have some other sources? Be good to get the recipe behind this three-course meal that you've been delivering? So this is the third year we've run the report, and it's got bigger and better every year. So I suppose the motivation behind it really came through Pavilion. So what Pavilion was seeing within their community of over 10,000 senior members now was that there was a lot of change happening in 2022. And really, they wanted to get their grips around kind of what was going on in, in the front office. Where were the challenges that companies were facing and really what are the signals that were driving revenue. So we've been working really closely with Pavilion. We reached out to our our community of customers. 364 companies agreed to take part in the review or in the report. And we analyzed 3.2 million opportunities. And that represented $37 billion worth of pipelines. So 
a lot of data and it was taken through the 12 months prior to January 23. And then quite recently at the CRO Pavilion Summit in London, because we've seen so much change again in the first half of 2023, we presented an update where we analyzed another 1.8 million opportunities across those customers. And just looking at what's changed in the last six months has been fascinating. So yes, some amazing insights and really helping people to understand the areas of their revenue edge they really need to focus in on and help them to understand the signals that drive revenue. Amazing. Yeah, lots of data, data-driven reports, always useful. Big data, I was about to say shocked me. I had that sort of mentality of thinking that around half of the sales representative would achieve their quota. But the report is actually showing that 27 of them actually achieve quota. So having a background of salesperson myself, is it because the quota are too high or is there something wrong with the sales guys? What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. There were some really interesting takeaways from the data. Yes, it was. So at the end of last year, we saw the lowest ever quota attainments at 29%. So in 2022, only 29% of AEs actually hit their quota. And then the first half of this year, we saw that decrease down to just 27%. I think that wasn't just the only shocking stat, right? I mean, it's not sustainable. You can't maintain an AE team if only it's less than a third of them hitting target. And when we looked at the difference between then and, and the first half of this year, um, we found that AE teams had actually, recruitment had dropped by 65%. So, and AE teams were actually 22% smaller than they were this time last year. So there's a lot of change happening in the front office of B2B sales businesses. And we can see all sorts of data points that are driving that. But, you know, what I'd say to the community that might be listening here is, don't beat yourself up too much. You're not alone. And in fact, almost half of our customers are outside of SaaS. So we sell to all sorts of businesses. And what's really interesting is that while we think we might be falling behind or we don't have quite every data point we need, when you step outside of SaaS, these businesses are now looking across to us with envious eyes. They're way behind where B2B SaaS businesses are, and they actually want to start taking these steps towards becoming more data-driven. So whether you're in an infrastructure business, logistics, oil and gas, energy, we're talking to all these types of businesses and they don't have anywhere near the level of visibility that we have in SaaS. And we beat ourselves up that we're not as structured as we should be. But one of the other stats that hit me out was that nearly 20% of AEs don't even have a target to hit. So the idea that you're not hitting quota, again, don't beat yourself up too much. There's a lot of inefficiencies going on in the sales process. And one of the interesting stats that we picked up on was out of the 3.2 million opportunities we analyzed, plus the 1.8 over the last year, so 5 million deals that we looked at, only 30% of opportunities opened close one. And the deals that close lost, they spend twice as long in pipe as deals that close one. So there's so much inefficiency in the sales cycle. And we all know the, how expensive salespeople are. So the ability to have a positive influence on those numbers is material. All we have to do is make them a little bit more productive and we can materially change the outcomes. So small incremental improvements can achieve exponential results. I had another question planned for you, but now you take me onto a journey. I want to go somewhere else. That's very interesting. So basically, opportunities are staying in the pipeline for longer, tire kickers. Is that something that you would attribute to the slowdown in the market that we've seen in H1? I think lots of people had a tough Q4, a tough Q1 2023, Q4 2022, Q1 2023. Do you think that's due to the buyer or do you think this is due to inefficiency in the sales process? And the reason why I'm asking you is because I know you've got a section about medic, medpick, and I was not too sure how to read that, but it seems to me that opportunities are not qualified properly when they become opportunities. So it's kind of a double-edged, double-sword, double-edged sword question in a way. But yeah, is it the market or is it qualification? 
Well, first of all, that stat that only 30% of opportunities opened a closed one is relatively consistent over the last three years. Okay, right. so I don't think that's market conditions. What we did see is the average win rate drop in 2022 materially by 15%. Now that's bounced back, but not fully. So we've seen uh, the increase, win rates have increased by 7% in the first half of this year. Sales cycles have, while they dropped by a third, they've actually recovered about halfway as ha and average deal values are starting to creep up again as well. But coming back to your question, yes, the thing that's changed is that we lived in a world of plenty before. So it didn't really matter if we weren't running a very structured sales process, if we weren't particularly data-driven, because that we were inundated with opportunities. Yep. Now we live in a very different world, and buyers are, of course, becoming more mature and they're, they're wanting to run more of the sales cycle themselves. But actually, because there's less opportunities to go after, we need to be a lot more data-driven and a lot more disciplined in the way that we qualify opportunities. If you're running a five-stage sales process and stage two is discovery, if you're not qualifying that opportunity correctly, it's very easy to skip through and end up in stage three and four where you're running trials and pilots and engaging other stakeholders in your business, solution engineers are getting involved, maybe finance and legal and security are getting involved. And actually, it turns out the customer may not even have budgets. We may not even know who the economic buyers are or what timescale they want to work to. So if you haven't qualified the opportunity well enough, you're costing your organization hugely uh, by taking the prospects that aren't really ready to buy through a sales process that they're never going to close. So there's so much opportunity to have a positive influence, not just on the improving the conversion rates, but actually by spending less time on opportunities that inevitably are going to close lost. Of course. As we prepare the podcast, you mentioned that consistency and discipline is key for success in sales. And, and I think you made a good point here. Maybe we had too much opportunities. We had too much distraction with people coming at us in the B2B SaaS, when I'm saying us, you know, I'm making a generality. So technically, there's a point of salespeople becoming complacent and maybe not putting as much qualification as they should put at the outset, expecting things to close, not really finding the economic buyer, not really asking the right question, not really qualifying properly. So having this opportunity that they would hug because they are struggling for pipeline and they need to show some numbers. But what are your thoughts on the market? So you mentioned something about the buyers being a little bit more educated, and I appreciate that it's not really what the report is all about. The report is more looking at the data from the opportunity. But when you speak to revenue leaders, what's their feedback on their market? Do you think sales cycles are longer? Do you think buyers are... My feeling is that buyers are all acting like little CFOs. Everybody is counting the pennies. I think in the past, budgets were... Individuals within organizations were given budget to spend and there wasn't a huge amount of oversight. And so now you can build a really good relationship with a key stakeholder and economic buyer within an organization. But if you aren't doing the diligent work and helping them to build a, a really concise, simple to understand business case that stands up when you're not in the room, then when they go to the CFO to try and get sign off, because now everything goes through the CFO, the CFO asks some real simple questions. Okay. Why are we doing this and why are we doing it now? Well, why is this the top priority? And if you can't articulate in a business case that, that stands up on its own two feet without you being in the room, then you're going to end up in the worst case scenario, which isn't that, remember, the best, the second best outcome is that we qualify our opportunities really early, okay? The worst case scenario is that we end up at the 11th hour, at the very final stage, the opportunity gets closed lost because the CFO ends up vetoing the deal and deciding that this isn't a high enough priority and we have other things that we should be working on instead. Yeah. And the chances are the seller will never get the opportunity to build a relationship with that CFO, but they do need to be able to articulate a very precise, clear understanding of the impact and the ROI that their proposition can have on the business. And if you're not building that muscle, 
then you're going to end up with the worst case scenario of investing lots of energy and time in sales processes that don't close. Yeah, I'm going to focus a little one more minute on the, or maybe five minutes on the less positive before we move to the negative and the good things from the report and how we can grow from it. But another stat that was interesting to me was the deal slippage. We're talking about 39%, I believe, in the report that of deals are not closing as expecting. This is a huge amount. Like this is 40%, pretty much half of your deals that are sleeping. Like, are we talking sleeping to the next quarter? Are we sleeping to the next year? Are we sleeping sleeping in the bin? Yeah, that would be my first question. And is there any sales strategies that can be used to minimize that deal slippage? Yes, absolutely. So first of all, we consider slippage kind of post stage two. So once you're in stage three of the sales cycle and beyond, so kind of po post discovery, we expect a company to understand how long it's going to take to close that deal. Yeah. So when we're talking, let me take you through a little bit of a, an EBSTA customer journey. So when we onboard a customer, the first thing we do is go back four quarters and do all the analysis and look at all of the data around the organization and try and understand what signals lead to revenue. And if you've got 50 sales reps that are working 20 opportunities a quarter, that's 4,000 deals a year coming through your business. Okay. Now you might be closing 20, 30, 40% of those deals. But what we're interested in understanding is the signals that led to those deals progressing for each stage and then ultimately closing one or closing lost. And what that does very quickly, and it takes about three days for us to do this analysis, and we have to connect to all of the data points you've got around your business, including mail servers, calendars, CRM, MarTech technologies as well. We're trying to understand all of the signals that you have around the business. So what's the difference between a sales cycle of a customer that's in market, that's got high intent, for example, versus a company that has low intent? And again, it's okay if the customer doesn't use intent data because we have relationships with companies that have intent data and we can go back historically and tell you whether the companies that you were selling to were actually in market before you started selling to them. So really trying to understand the signals that led to revenue in the past helps us to build a benchmark of what good looks like. And so when we understand that a customer is traditionally in state that sell, that closes one, would traditionally be in stage three, for example, for three or four weeks, well, then we know what good looks like. And as that deal starts to take longer than that, then that's considered slippage. So we understand the signals that lead to revenue. We understand the time that everybody should be in stage and the pace and momentum we'd expect to see and how many stakeholders you should be engaging with. And I mean, the list goes on. So what, what's really interesting, though, is not all revenue is equal. Okay. So for example, if you're walking into next quarter with a, and your target's a million dollars for the quarter, if you've had half a million dollars slip from last quarter and you're sitting here going, oh, it's all fine because we've already got half a million dollars in pipe. The problem is that deals that have slipped are much less likely to lead to close one. Okay. And so not all revenue, not all full class revenue is equal. So knowing that if a deal has slipped and by how much it will, the chances of it closing will be materially less helps you to forecast a whole lot more accurately and understand what actual signals you need to be leaning into to understand whether the deals are are real or not. And in terms of strategy to minimize slippage, so we work with lots of sales team and we are doing a lot of calls with them. So we would set an appointment for DAE and we go on the call with DAE, DAE turn up their laptop, do a demo. And we are speaking more and more with our clients, particularly since Q4, last year, Q1, this year, and things are being a bit tense. But when we are in our sales process and actually trying to get a client on board, we bring a little bit of friction and as part of that friction is, how do you create urgency in the service process? How do you actually create a moment where people are like, God, we need to do something about it? Is urgency what's missing from your perspective? Is that the cause for deal slippage? Do you, is what you mentioned earlier on, where people don't put the business case, 
So technically, you speak to someone and you bet on your horse, thinking he's going to be a champion, and you keep on betting on that horse, but your horse doesn't win anything and doesn't help you to win. Is it because we're not exploiting the consensus of an account-based campaign where we go to multiple buyers, which is another thing that you've got in the reports about multiple buyers? So I know it's a wide open question and there is probably not a generic answer, one size fits all because everybody is different. But at least if you could address the sort of reason why slippage is happening and how we could prevent it from your perspective, that'd be super useful. Sure. Well, look, let's start top of the funnel. Okay. If we're targeting companies that are in market to buy our product, we're much more likely to have a positive outcome and for the sales cycle to be a relatively short one and, to, and the average deal value to be slightly higher. So let's make sure we're targeting companies that are in market. Also, we find that the AEs that are best performing are the ones that, are, that have at least 30% of their pipe filled with ICP. Okay. So if you're not targeting your ideal customer profiles and you're just targeting any company that comes inbound, then you're much less likely to have a positive outcome. Again, it's slightly different for different businesses or even different departments, different products within the same business. So it's really important to do this historical analysis. And again, I'd encourage you know, anyone who's interested in going through that exercise, it takes us a, less than a week to connect everything up and produce the report. The spoke version of what we've produced in this, this report with Pavilion, we're, we do that for every customer, not just once when they come on board and go back four quarters, but every three months they get an update on those insights from, as part of the service. So really trying to understand the influence of being in market, propensity or intent is really key. And, and you might have all sorts of signals that are leading to propensity. Are they spending time on your website? Did they download a white paper? Have they gone to your webinar? What words are they searching online? And so on. So again, really understanding who's in market and making sure what we're targeting, targeting at least a third of our opportunities are ICP. So that's very much top of the funnel. Then my biggest suggestion here is all around being that qualification process. If we spend an extra week in that discovery phase, it can serve us so much better further down the line. And encouraging this and allowing the sales team to live in a world where they close lost opportunities sooner. A lot of people feel they've almost got to have a certain amount of pipe in market in, that's live, even though when you dig into it, you find that half of it's not real. So allowing the salespeople to have that freedom to close off deals off as, as lost and, and encouraging them almost to, if they can't achieve certain minimum levels of criteria or qualification, that is absolutely key. We always see so much dross in the sales process, sales cycles, that once we dig into it, it's just not real. Yeah. So understanding the signals that tell you whether the deals are likely to slip. So then when we start talking about slippage itself, okay, so what do we know? We know that slippage is a really good indicator the deal's likely to close loss. Okay? And there's a world of difference between slipping a couple of days and slipping into the next month or the next quarter. And the more times it slips that from the deal closed forecast date, the, the less likely it is to close one. Okay? Now, so what's an indicator? So we know that slippage is the biggest indicator for closed lost opportunities. So now the question is, well, what's the good indicator for slippage? And the single answer to that is engagement. Okay, so one of the things that we do for customers is measure the momentum or engagement that they have with every stakeholder involved in every sales cycle. So we give every relationship a business has a score out of 100, bluntly, because we know that relationships drive revenue. So when that engagement score starts to drop, it's a really good indicator that that deal's likely to slip. And if the deal slips, it's a really good indicator that it's likely to close lost. So what do I mean by high levels of engagement? And so we measure, we take a feed of everything from meetings, calls, emails, and so on. But if people start ghosting your calls or not responding to your emails or not turning up to meetings or pushing meetings consistently, that's a good indicator that that relationship is starting to drop. And that will lead to slippage, which could lead to a closed lost opportunity. 
So when you start seeing those relationship numbers drop down or momentum or engagement with those stakeholders start to drop, it's a good opportunity for someone perhaps more senior, maybe to interrupt with the sales process and try and course correct. Maybe offer the customer a way out. It looks like you missed a couple of our meetings. We're all busy people. If this isn't right for you now, yeah. just let me know so we can move on to something more productive. Let's touch base in a couple of months. And they could push back, go, no, 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 it's out. You know, sorry about that. We are interested. We don't want to move forward. Or actually, you're right. Let's put this aside for now and move on to something else. And better to know. Of course, that's something that we definitely do. You know, when, when people are not turning up to meetings and things like that, look, if it's not for you right now, that's fine. Just let us know when. But let's have a communication so we know when to get back in touch with you. And when you send the email that are, in a way, a little bit more forceful, a little bit more, okay, I'm actually about to drop it. You've got the prospect coming back saying, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. I didn't mean to act like that or whatever. But I think it's also, for me, it's about creating the urgency in the first meeting. It's really on the size of the pain. And you know, we're talking about creating the urgency. We're talking about, is it worth the cost of change for the bigger deals? If you go to a very big bank and you say, we're going to save you 500K per year, right? They're going to look at you and say, you know what? You need to save me at least 5 million for me to move a finger. That's nothing. So it's all those little things that are quite interesting to assess that the cost of change and asking this question early can be scary for a salesperson because particularly if you don't have a lot of opportunity coming in, if you don't have a lot of inbound, if you don't have a lot of, you're not really good at outbound, you don't feel comfortable doing outbound, you almost want to create opportunity to keep your job ready. But I completely agree with you. One thing that interests me is that you mentioned 30% target ICP as part of the opportunity. That seems to be very low to me. I would expect, I want my sales game to have 90%, 80% minimum of target ICP. And you mentioned that it was due to inbound. Is that because people are just going through inbound that are not really the ideal customer profile, but we're trying to sell to them anyway? There's all sorts of reasons behind it, but yeah, it also depends on how tight your ICP is. Okay. So if you know, yeah. how close do you really understand who your ideal customer profile is? And, and again, by doing this historical benchmarking, it becomes obvious which deals are quick to close, which deals are less likely to churn very quickly off the back of them winning and which ones are going to give you the best return on investments. Uh, there were some other interesting points around the sales cycle. When we start to analyze the stakeholders involved in every stage of the sales process, so sometimes we find that actually the sales cycle can be optimized by going into a, a key stakeholder or a key influencer first, rather than straight to the economic buyer. And so rather than trying to target the CEO, it turns out that the CEO leans heavily on a strategic head in the business. And if you can get that strategic head to sponsor you into the CEO, suddenly we all know that we buy through referral and take advice from people that we trust a lot more than a salesperson. So you might find that when we do the analysis that actually your sales cycles are 20% shorter if you go in through this particular persona rather than the one you think is your economic buyer. Yeah. Um, and again, when should you be getting involved with the CFO? Can we engage with the CFO a little bit earlier? And I genuinely think marketing's got a big opportunity to play here as well. So five years ago, marketing was responsible for generating leads. And three years ago, marketing was responsible for generating opportunities. Well, now with the data that we're able to analyze, marketing can be responsible for the number. Because with, deal, with details like intent or propensity to be in market to buy your product and understanding your ICP better than ever before and understanding the analysis of what a good sales cycle looks like, marketing is now in a position where every lead it generates can be bucketed into tier one, tier two, and tier three type of opportunities. 
And marketing, with, if there's enough data, we should know that if you generate a tier one opportunity and the sales, if the salesperson engages with seven people through the sales cycle and does the discovery correctly and the process works this way, then we're going to close 63% of those deals and the average deal value is going to be 100 grand and it's going to take 47 days to go through. And you can do the same with each of those. So now instead of marketing being the whipping boy of sales, where we always want more leads and give us more opportunities, now marketing is able to stand back and say, hold on, I've generated the opportunities and the leads that you needed to hit quota this quarter. But now you guys in sales need to be diligent in the way you're running your sales cycle. And we're seeing the most innovative businesses are the ones that are leaning into this, the marketing department, because A, the marketing team would be more data-driven than any other department in the front office for a very sure. long time. So they understand this stuff. And B, they're able to hold us accounts to actually hitting the numbers that we're here for. So I think marketing's got a great role to play in not just top of the funnel marketing, but if you know that stage three of the sales cycle, we've got to get engagement with, I don't know, the CFO, and it takes us 20 days to get to that stage. Well, then a week before that, marketing's starting to target the CFO with messages on social. So the CFO's starting to get warmed up in the market before you actually need to engage with them. There's so much opportunity for the revenue engine to work as a unit, but it's all about being more data-driven and understanding signals that lead to revenue. And if you haven't got the data, then you can't go on this journey. And you're not even at the beginning of the race. Okay, so while it's boring, the first thing we have to do is fix the data. And well, I find it interesting. I find it interesting. I, I like what you describe. You know, for me, it's the perfect concept of account-based marketing, account-based selling. There is two concepts. That it's like tango. It takes two to dance it. And you've got to be together and you've got to work at the same time. If not, it's ugly and nobody wants to watch it. But when it's done properly, it's very gracious and everybody enjoys it and you're going to end up clapping at the end of it. So it's so true. And I think I've been part of a lot of CMO groups where people are really focusing on this, really focusing on, okay, we've generated the opportunity, but it's not just bringing opportunity at the top of the funnel, it's how do we convert them? And maybe they start the journey out of a little bit of a fight with a sales leader because they wanted to prove that their leads were a shit and that you could do something about it. But it's also true that I think salespeople receiving inbounds we also see a lot of salespeople that become a little bit complacent with the inbound. You get the inbound, so you're going to call them once, you're going to ask them the question, do you want to do something now? All right, fair play. Might not be the right person. Usually an inbound is not coming from the person who's got the business pain. You're going to ask someone in your team to go and do some research. So trying to understand the concept and turning that inbound into an outbound process is particularly if they're in your ICP, I think is absolutely key. But I agree with you, the data is, I think people who think that data is boring won't enjoy the next three decades to come because it's going to be about, it's all about data, really. It's all about knowing what you're doing. And if you want to win, you need to have the data. It, that's my opinion. I agree. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a crack shop. You don't know whether you're going to win or not. Sure, like. And if you're not data-driven, your competitors will be. And the market's changing so much faster than we ever thought it would. I want to come back on the market changing because my question would be about the future. It's got nothing to do with the report. But before that, there's another stat that gave me like a reminder of a book I read from Matt Dixon called The Challenger Cell, where I think you mentioned that around 20% of the sales rep are delivering 80% of the revenue. What makes those guys special? Because everybody wants that 20%. How can we get 100% of that, that what constitutes that 20%? I hear you. So the exact stat, what we call the velocity delta, is that 23% of the AEs are generating 83% of the revenue. And we've never seen that delta be as far apart as it is today. And so really trying to understand what the rock stars are doing correctly and trying to replicate that with the rest of the team is absolutely key. And again, how do we do that? We're data, we need to be data-driven. 
And so when we look at what drives the behavior of the best performers, it's fascinating to see. And you can see, again, I've got some interesting stats. I'll share the deck so that you can share it with your community after the event. Sure. The things that the key here is consistency. So if you're running a sales team with five AE, four or five VPs of sales, okay, all running different sales cycles, then the learns from one, it's going to be very difficult to replicate with the others. And so this is why we talk a lot about consistency and just having a consistent approach to the way you run every single sales cycle means that we can make small incremental changes very quickly and it can have a big impact on outcomes. Sure. So because the market changes around us and we just saw that with CFOs getting more involved in sales processes. Well, now we know that we need to get much better at the way we write business plans and business cases. So now one of the departments will do that better than the others. And then once they've done it correctly, we can take advantage of that if everyone's running the same sales cycle and everyone using the same format to forecast, for example. So as you know, it's a forecasting platform inside Salesforce or, or inside HubSpot. So making everybody forecast in the same way means it's a much, much easier to see where the deviations are. And you know, why is it that this team only need 2.7 coverage to hit quota, but this team need 5.8? What is it that these guys are doing well that these guys are doing less well? And if everyone's doing things in the same format, it's much easier to understand where the challenges are. But coming back to your question, what are the AEs that are winning doing better than others? Ultimately, it's a number of things. First of all, they're targeting more targeting ICP. They're not worried if they haven't got enough pipeline in place. They're just focusing on the quality opportunities rather than just running around like headless chickens trying to close anything that they can just because the pipeline's light. They're building good relationships in their market. We consistently find the individual contributors with the highest number of good quality relationships, even outside of sales processes, just in general, are engaging with their whole community, their market. They're the ones that have the most, the highest relationships of customers, of people in an active sales process as well, which is, of course, is key because we know relationships drive revenue. So having high levels of engagement, having the highest volume of relationships in the market and having higher levels of engagement with people in process and yeah. being multi-threaded in those opportunities consistently, these are the things that we're seeing that lead to the best possible outcomes. It's just consistency and will to win and that approach that they take to build good quality relationships and be, be perceived as that expert advisor to the customer rather than just a sales rep, do you want to buy yet? Can I send you a proposal now? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. And I think that makes perfect sense. Last question. Oh, go on. You have something to say? We see the same in success. So what's fascinating, because revenue intelligence is not just about forecasting. It's about the whole revenue engine. So when we look at the energy that goes into building those relationships with the key stakeholders and the economic buyers, you see the trend of engagement trend up and trend up to the mm -hmm. point where they trust you enough to sign a contract for lots of money, right? So now they sign that contract, what do we then see? Well, what do we want to see? We want to see the level of engagement and momentum continue at that high level. What do we actually see? We've signed the contract, engagement and momentum with the key stakeholders drops. And guess what? It doesn't matter how much the users on the ground are using your product or service. 12 months later, the customer ends up churning because no one bothered to maintain a relationship with the economic buyer. So we know that these relationships drive revenue. And if you are serious about wanting to keep those customers happy, keep the churn rates low and keep the cross-sell upsell as high as it possibly can, maintain those relationships. We actually did a podcast with the head of CX at Salesforce. It was a good six months ago. And now we have an head of CX at Operatics. And the job of the head of CX is to get everybody to be what you just defined, which is customer success. And the sales guys can do a good job, but what happened next? You want the receptionist to be good. You want everybody to be good. You want everybody to just sing from the same song and all that sort of great stuff. But I'm going to give you an example. I went to an event in London the day before on Tuesday, InfoSec. 
And I went there, I met with a lady who used to be a client in another company. And she said, look, I've already influenced everybody to work with you guys. We have something in place, but we want to replace with what we've got. And I want that guy who was dealing with my program before and his manager, that guy. And she was telling me the team she wants. And she said, if you give me the team, because I know I trust them. And I said, why that team? She said, trust, rapidity in communication. When I need something, they really, they react. And I kind of, I know it's bad because we're supposed to be not working late in the evening, but she was like, look, when I've got the US calling me at seven and I need a response by eight, I could count on your team to give me a response by eight. And the last thing that she mentioned was a very transparent honesty. She said, it was like working with colleagues. If there is a problem, First of all, they would be honest about the issue, accountable. And then there is the care. They care as much as I do. We are stressed together. We win together. It's not like that relationship where I've got to chase you. And, and I found that brilliant. And I sent a voice note in our, in our leadership group because this is exactly what we're trying to build. Imagine if it's not just a sales guy selling, but then after that, we really have a duty of care. You're being put, I want to be put into conversation with customers because sometimes you need to. And I don't think a CEO should be in the ivory tower. If you need to go and speak to a customer, no matter how much money they spend, there is something that needs to be done up to a certain point. But, and we're getting big now, so I could spend a lot of time speaking to customers. But having that duty of care, maybe you don't do it one by one, but you do it by group of people. And we are trying to bring all those things where we are trying to be closer to the customers because we also believe that customers are changing. Their environment is changing. Their level of stress is changing. The level of pressure they're getting from their leadership is changing consistently. And if you speak to someone in February, their situation in September, particularly if you work with B2B SaaS company, may be completely different. If you work with a very large, very old school organization, things may be relatively the same. But if you are in the tech space, February, we were like going like crazy. September, God, we need to raise the next round. We've got to stop everything. Everybody goes. We're going to start with a new team in January. It's like, so you've got to be on it and you've got to speak to them. So that's a very, very important point for all the audience because we've got revenue leaders, but we also have people in customer success or even people in operation. The point that you make about relationship, guys, I think is fundamental. You've got to develop this genuine, positive, you don't need to be friends with clients, but having that sort of respect and honesty in the relationship, is critical. You want to be their guy. You want to be the person that they call when they've got a problem. You're the fixer. I want to move it to the future now. My last question to you, which is, well, obviously that report was 2022. You've seen a lot of data since. You probably see a lot of data every day. How would you see the landscape of sales evolving? And is there any emerging trends or new approaches that sales leaders should consider? Yeah. So look, first of all, we've all got to be data-driven now. And so step one on that journey is fixing the data. So if we're in 2023, if you're still relying on reps to manually log their activity, create contacts, keep them up to date in the CRM, we need to get that off their plate because it's just a distraction and an excuse for not hitting targets. So there are some tools out there, EPS is one of them, but you can fix the data very quickly. And then you need to start benchmarking what good looks like in the past so that you've got the DNA of a good deal and you need everybody working in the same way when they're doing their one-to-one -one reviews. Ideally, in the system of record, inside Salesforce, inside HubSpot, you should be able to, everyone should know what the positive and negative factors are on every opportunity so they know what the likely next step is. And again, rather than this kind of stupid debate as to, well, leave me alone, the deal's fine, they love me, they're definitely going to buy what we want to be doing is walking in there saying you've done a great job engaging with Jane or John, but look, the data tells us if you have one more stakeholder involved in this deal, we can increase our win rate by 40%. 
or if we can increase our engagement with the CFO by 20 points, we can reduce the sales cycle by 30 days. So instead of it being a combative, I'm doing okay, leave me alone, and the sales leader trying to understand the deal in more detail, all of the data should be there at the fingertips of everybody. So everyone knows what's expected of them, what a good deal looks like and what a bad one looks like. So fix the data, do the benchmarking, understand the positive and negative factors on every opportunity, have everyone doing things in a consistent way. Everyone now should be out of spreadsheets. You should be using a simple tool for forecasting. Uh, All of them are out there, including Evster. And then once you've got the data in place, then it's about using RevOps for, for small incremental improvements. It's not about big step changes. It's about small changes, small incremental improvements. Try and understand the DNA of what good looks like. What is it we can take from the guys that are winning more consistently and train the other guys to be better at that? And what's interesting is that usually you don't find one rock star that's excellent at everything. You might find when we do the analysis, so we produce a leaderboard of every AE within the business every three months. And what we find is, and we're interested in trying to understand, you know, average deal values, time to close, conversion rates, and most importantly, how much coverage they each need to hit quota. And what's fascinating is all we need to do is continue to focus on how we can slightly reduce that down. And some are really good at the qualification process. Others are just skipping through that and spending far too much time on deals that are never going to win. Others aren't very good at the discovery or the business case building and the closing. So knowing where they need the training will be obvious when you start to look at the data and see where they're losing the most. So be more data-driven. There's no reason why we can't get a lot more outcomes out of a much smaller team if we're a lot more clever about how we analyze the data and the approach that we take. Yeah, 100%. Thanks for all the insight that you shared with us, Guy, today. There's lots of stats. I took a a fair amount of notes. Super useful. I'm going to press on my team on Monday. I'm speaking with the sales team, so I'm going to speak about this relationship over and over again. If anyone wants to continue the conversation with you or would like to speak to Epstar about how you could help them to actually get that insight, to get that data together, or to actually start the journey of understanding what's going on. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Well, first of all, anyone can connect with me on LinkedIn. Just mention the, the podcast and I'll happily accept. And you know, always, always up for a conversation around being more data-driven wherever you are. And whether you're interested in buying technology or not, doesn't matter to me. I'm a data geek and enjoy this stuff. So feel free to reach out if you're in the community. You can download the insight report that we've been talking about on the front page yep. of our website. I'm sure we're, we're going to share. We'll I think, put a link as well. Yeah, we'll put so, a link when we share the podcast with everybody to make sure. So that download talk. that. And inevitably, if you do, if one of my SDRs doesn't reach out to you within a day, then I want to know about it. So they'll probably reach out and try and find out. Unless you, know, you are not in the ACP. Well, exactly. And then we'll leave you alone. Yeah. So that's probably the easiest way if you're interested in engaging with us. We do offer free trials for customers using HubSpot or Salesforce. Again, you can kick those off on the front page of epster.com. So yeah, look forward to hearing from everyone in the community. And if I can be useful to anyone, just let me know. Well, thank you so much, Gay. Well, absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Always good. Lovely to see you. Take care. Lovely to see you. Thanks for listening to Revenue Insights. If you want to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, and we'll deliver every episode straight to your inbox. If you have any questions, feel free to connect with us on LinkedIn. Our links will be in the episode notes. See you next week.